But what I want to try to do in the time that we have is to focus on one topic that I have been working on for some time. As Parker mentioned just a minute ago, working with uh, Probe Ministries, we have been doing a variety of surveys. And this last uh, couple of months, I have been doing a lot of interviews on the survey. And I thought this was one of the last Sundays we have before we start our new series. I thought I would cover some of that. If for no other reason to give you a break from last week, a lot of people said, well, that was pretty intellectual last week. Can we get something a little easier to follow? So we will uh, focus on some of that. And I might just mention Parker's on the board. So at the end, if you thought this was really helpful, you might thank him for his service on the board because he's one of those board members that has made it possible. But let me give you some of the background. Uh, back in 2010, we did a survey of what we called culturally captive Christians. This was a survey primarily of born-again millennials. Why did we do that? We began to recognize, as we speak so much on worldview and apologetics, that something was dramatically changing in our world. And so we looked at those 18 to 40 years old. Uh, it was for just those who were born again. Um, and survey of over 800 individuals that we did. Well, that was 10 years ago. And after 10 years, we thought maybe it would be good to come back and do that again. So the one I'm going to talk most about, although I'll do a little bit of introduction in the previous one, is our 2020 survey. And I've been doing all sorts of radio and television interviews on that. And that's where we really wanted to look at the broader culture. So we looked at those who are 18 to 55, over 3,000 individuals, of which a good number of those were born-again Americans. Now, to understand what I'm going to go through, you may want to turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 2, or I'll just put that on the screen, because we're going to be using this idea of individuals that are culturally captive. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from this particular statement that the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church, said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, our ESV has it a little bit differently, but all of them use this Greek word that is translated captive. Interestingly enough, this is not the only time the Apostle Paul uses that word. He also, in Ephesians, uh, talks about the fact that individuals who were Jews were captive to the law. In other words, that's uh, when he writes uh, to Ephesians and he writes to Galatians and other passages, he's addressing those individuals that still were living under the law, even though they were no longer under the law. He also, as he writes to the church in uh, Corinth, talks about the fact that we are tearing down strongholds and lofty thoughts raised up against the knowledge of God, and we need to take every thought, what? Captive to the obedience of Christ. So this idea is, is that sometimes individuals may be saved in their heart, but they're captive to the culture in their heads. Or if you're taking some notes, I know some of you might want to take some notes, you can also put down Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we should not be conformed to this culture. So the idea that we're going to be talking about today are those individuals who are still, nevertheless, maybe have uh, had a born-again experience that's meaningful to them, maybe even walked an aisle, maybe even were baptized, but are captive to the cultures. So that's going to be important to what we're talking about. The other thing we're going to be talking about is what do we mean by a biblical worldview? 
Now, the number uh, six questions that are used most often by Barna Research, by George Barna, and even by us in our first survey, were six questions that really are what you might consider to be Bible 101. Uh, do you believe that there is a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, creator of the universe? Do you believe that the Bible is totally accurate in all its teachings? Do you believe that good works will earn a place in heaven? Of course, you should say no to that. Uh, did you believe that Jesus led a sinful life? Do you believe that de- the devil or Satan is a real being? And are there moral truths that are true for everyone and for all people at all time? In other words, do you believe in absolutes? And those six questions then were something we used in our survey in 2010. It's also going to be important in the one I'm going to talk about in just a minute in 2020. Everybody with me? That's kind of going through it fairly quickly. But again, as Parker said, a lot of this is on the website. Well, okay. when we did the survey of born again millennials, what we found was something very interesting. You could almost put them into one third, one third, one third. Uh, for some of you who've been in a class for a while, I talked about this a few years ago, so this is familiar. But for all of us, let's just recognize that about one-third of these born-again millennials that we interviewed had a biblical worldview. That is, they agreed with all six of those questions, or I gave the right answer, I should say, on all six of those questions. And number two, they attend the church regularly. Now, I might mention this is a pretty low bar. To be considered a regular church member, it means you go to church two out of every four Sundays which is still kind of a low bar, right? But that's considered regular church attendance by most of the people that work in this area. And biblical worldview, really, if you think about it, that's only six questions, which I think most people would actually agree to. And so what we found is about a third of those individuals have a biblical worldview and attend church. Another third uh, don't have a biblical worldview on one or more of those questions, didn't give a biblical answer, but they attend church on a regular basis. You've seen this before, you know, maybe even in this church, but certainly you've been in other churches where you have somebody and they're a Christian and you talk to them. And then all of a sudden, one day they say something, you go, you believe that? I can't believe you believe that. You know, you've been down that road. And so this is one of the things we found there. And then also we found that one third uh, did not have a biblical worldview and did not go to church on a regular basis. They may occasionally go to church, but they didn't go on a regular basis. With that as a background, here's what we found A number of years ago, we found that those born again millennials with a biblical worldview who attend church regularly were more likely to look at a biblical source for making decisions about family, business or religious ideas. In other words, their guidepost in making decisions was the Bible. And what we found is, is those that were born again and went to church, three fourths of them or more tended to do that. We also found those, that those attended church that did not have a biblical worldview, only about a third of them did. And then when you go to that third group, even fewer. But the key point was this. We used to always think that if I can just get people into church, then they'll start thinking biblically. We found out it isn't necessarily the case. A biblical worldview was sort of the watershed, how they were thinking Individuals can go to church, listen to sermons, even be in church on a fairly regular basis and walk out and pretty much think like the world. And that was what we discovered years ago in our survey of millennials. So then we started asking some other questions. We didn't just ask questions about what you believe, but also cultural practice. For example, if you were involved in illicit sexual activity, have problems with anger, selfishness, or whatever, we found that those individuals that were what we called captive Christians, 
those are the individuals that did not have a biblical worldview, they didn't even necessarily feel guilty about that. You know, so again, you can see how that begins to manifest itself. One third had no guilt about sexual indiscretions, about half felt, did not feel guilty about other forms of sinful behavior. And so when we try to put all of this together, take, okay, those individuals that have a biblical worldview that are in church, but also then had a consistent set of biblical practices. They prayed once a day, read the Bible at least once a week attended church at least twice a month, that got down to just 14% of all those in the millennial generation. Then if we take those individuals that had a biblical worldview, had a consistent set of religious practices, and then ask questions about their cultural beliefs on abortion, sex outside of marriage site, we got down to 2%. And that was why when, at this point, we said, if we really want to begin to build the church for the 21st century, we have to do some things. Now, uh, what you might say did pro-ministries do? Well, first of all, we published a book, the one on the left here, by Steve Cable, Cultural Captives, that not only included all the research that we did, but all the other research. The Barna Research Group, Christian Smith, Baylor, the GSS surveys, and put all that together to show what we were seeing wasn't an anomaly, wasn't a one-off, but actually is a trend that we were very concerned about. And then also we put together a program, that book on the right is one that I wrote, which was a seven-week program for churches which actually could go through this material. And some of you that have been around in the examine class for a while remember when we actually went through that material. Because you can see here that we have the book, we have the small group study, we have the DVDs, we have the CDs, and all sorts of other great material to go through that. And by the way, if you say to yourself, well, I'd like to go through that as well, at, uh, on the right-hand side here, you can actually go to rightnow.org. You don't even have to purchase it because members of Prestonwood have access to that material. So to this day, there are still churches and small groups that are using some of that material of seven weeks, seven sermons, um, reading every single day over that 49 days, plus music uh, that is available in a CD, even music charts for churches that might have guitar or might have an orchestra, those kinds of things. And that's kind of what we've been doing. And this is some of the advertising that we've done. You can see on the left-hand side there is an endorsement by Chuck Swindoll. On the right-hand side, you can see an endorsement by Tony Evans. So that's a church program that we've had in existence now. Now, almost 12 years. But we wanted to then begin to ask the question, okay, 10 years later, where did we found? And we wanted to broaden that to actually interview more than 3,000 plus individuals to really understand the religious views and practices. So that's kind of where I'm going to focus most of our time and attention on today. And the first question we wanted to ask is, How have the religious affiliation of American young adults changed over these many years? And really, up until about 1990, there weren't a whole lot of changes. But by 1990 on, there were some very significant changes. And I'm going to show you a couple of graphs and charts along the way. But what we have found is, is that you began to see fewer people that identified as evangelicals in some of the churches. We've seen a decline. 
This wasn't something unique to our study. Uh, Lifeway, which is the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, has seen that. George Barna has seen that. Christian Smith has seen that. People that are really well known for doing these surveys have. So the number of sort of born-again Protestants stayed somewhat a level. But what we have seen is a remarkable decline in the other Protestant churches. These would be churches where you don't have born-again people. Might be Presbyterian, might be uh, Anglican, Episcopal, uh, Lutheran, whatever it might be. And the drop-off in Catholicism would be even more dramatic if it weren't for so many Hispanics coming into this country. So a lot of people are leaving the church in the broadest sense of the word church. And so you might say, where are they going? The most dramatic increase has been among those which we call the unaffiliateds. You've also sometimes heard them called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. But every time I say nuns, people think Catholic nuns. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about individuals who select atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. And you can see on this chart here that we have two particular groups. We have those that are kind of the 20-somethings here. And then we have some of the 30-somethings over there. And um, the chart doesn't have the arrows, but Suzanne and I were kind of looking at this saying, if I put the arrows in, you can kind of see the trend. And the reality is this. Whether you look at the 20-somethings or the 30-somethings, you can see that the number of unaffiliateds since really about 1988 have increased from 13% to 35%. In other words, the fastest growing demographic group for the younger generation, this would be the immersion generation, both Generation Y and now Generation Z, are those who are the unaffiliateds, or sometimes they're called the nuns. Now, what do we say about that? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is, is that sometimes the assumption is, is that these unaffiliated young adults aren't, uh, are hostile to the church. Now, if you go to some of the events that we have been involved with, I know recently when we had this outreach at the University of Texas at Dallas, the entire front row were made up of the North Texas Humanist Association and the atheist of UTD. Okay, so there are those individuals, but they tend to be the minority. Most of these young adults who are unaffiliated aren't so much hostile to the church. They're not the people that have read Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens or uh, Daniel Dennett or something like that. They're just sort of apathetic about religion. They just simply say that, you know, there's really nothing that um, the church has to offer to me that makes any sense. So I'm not really interested in what the Bible has to say. I'm not really interested in Jesus Christ. I'm really not interested in the church. And as a result, these individuals are not coming to church. Now, one of the reasons we did this survey, though, is because we have noticed that some pastors and some Christian leaders in uh, Christian uh, Christianity Today and a variety of other sources have said, well, yeah, but we do know that there is a tendency for young people when they graduate from high school and they go into the world. Maybe they go to church. Or maybe I mean, they, maybe they go to college. Maybe they go into the military. Maybe they just go into the workaday world. They kind of take a break from church. But eventually they'll come back again. Um, because once they get married and have children, they will want to maybe come back to church. 
Well, I will be able to show you a little bit later. We've been able to now log that over 10 years and say they're not coming back. And probably a good way to illustrate that is, is about a month ago, Stephen Cable, who is working with us at Probe and myself, we published this article in Christian Post in which um, we actually started out by saying, you've heard the phrase, if you build it, they will come. I use that because we just had the Field of Dreams game right there. And I said, you all remember that. If you build it, they will come. Except I argue, we build 350,000 churches in America, and they're not coming. We can document that pretty well. And so the title of this is, sadly, no, young adults are not returning to church. Because we're able to show that, if anything, the number of individuals that are convinced that the church has no answers, seems to be increasing rather than decreasing. And so that is, I think, going to be important as we get to the next point that you can see on your handout. And that is, what about this idea of worldview? What is kind of common, if indeed, um, how common is a biblical worldview among these young adults, Generation Y and Generation Z? And I would have to say that in both of our surveys in 2010 and 2020, we actually included specific questions to help identify whether an individual had a biblical worldview. Most of the time, the Pew surveys, the GSS surveys, the general social surveys don't ask those questions. And so we wanted to try to ask those questions. And we broke them down a little differently. How many of them have what you might call a basic worldview? God, Bible, salvation, Jesus Christ. And then, how many had not only those four, but two others, the expanded worldview, Satan, and moral truth? Why did we divide that up? Well, our experience was 10 years ago, is that if you were looking for the watershed, where are the places where the individuals did not agree with the biblical view? Almost always it had to do with either a belief that Satan was not a real person, or that they did not believe in absolute truth. And those of you might remember when we went through the series of Periscope that we did um, at the Black's house. Thank you again for being so nice to have made that possible. You might remember that the second week we covered on Satan and spiritual warfare and everything. Why did we do that? Because we came to realize that if you don't believe in Satan, you probably don't know there's a spiritual battle taking place. And you probably don't believe in spiritual warfare. And how can you win the battle of spiritual warfare if you don't even know you're in a battle? Make sense? So, and then, of course, the issue of moral truth. But anyway, let's try to look at those issues. Again, I put some arrows in the graphs. And again, if you go to the probe website at the end, there are more graphs than you probably have time to look at. But we go through all of this in some detail. But again, let's look at those individuals. Uh, how many of them had a basic worldview? Again, you can see up there, gray represents the 40-somethings. Yellow represents the 30-somethings. Blue represents kind of the 20-somethings. And you can see the general trend. The younger you are, the less likely you are to have a basic worldview. The 40-somethings, it's about uh, about 34%, all the way down to the 20-something, that's down to about 25%. If you add the two other issues of Satan and 
an absolute worldview. That moves from the the 40-somethings, about 25% of them have a biblical worldview, down to those who have about 15% have a expanded biblical worldview. And so you can begin to see one of the really great challenges for this church, for other churches, for Christian organizations, for Christian missions, is to begin to have this generation uh, to actually have a biblical worldview. Because a minute ago I was talking about those outside the church, the unaffiliated. Now I'm talking about the people that have had a born-again experience that has been meaningful in their life, that they believe they're saved by grace. But when you talk about, do they have a biblical view of the world, what we would consider to be kind of just basic uh, orthodox views, that isn't necessarily the case. Here's another way to look at this. You can see that the blue and then the hatches looking at the difference between 2010 and 2020 of those individuals that were 18 to 29. But I'm going to point to a different graph because just think of something. If we interviewed people that were 18 and 29 10 years ago, the 18-year-olds would now be what? 28-year-olds. The 29-year-olds would be 30-year-olds. So, again, I'm showing you that if you follow those same individuals, in this case we're following the same cohort, you can see that those individuals that had a biblical worldview back 10 years ago that were 18 to 29, 47% of them had a biblical worldview. If we look at them now, 10 years later, only 25% of them have a biblical worldview. Does that make sense? Or you look on the expanded worldview, same thing. The blue would represent the 18 to 29-year-olds 10 years ago, and now you went from 32% to 16%, which I think just sets aside something you hear all the time. Oh, well, they're going to leave the church, but eventually they're going to come back to church. The problem with the idea of coming back to church is a lot of them weren't in church in the first place. One of the former members here of the examine class used to teach at uh, the Dallas Art Institute. And when she was teaching at the Dallas Art Institute, of course, they look at paintings and things like that, that they would also go into architectural forms as they were teaching architecture. And she would say that as she brought many of these at that time, mostly millennials into a church, a majority of them would say, This is the first time I've ever been inside a church. Now, think about that. That means they've never been to a wedding inside a church. They've never been to a funeral inside a church. They've never been in a Sunday school class. So sometimes this idea of coming back to church is based on a false premise that they were in church in the first place. And so these are some of the challenges that we need to begin to think about. Okay, you're probably about as depressed as you can possibly be right now. No, let me think about this for just a minute. One of the things that Steve Cable uh, points out in some of the material there is that we also need to just think of this historically. You know, if you think about the percentage of people that had a biblical worldview, the number of Christians that had a biblical world in the Roman Empire by A.D. 60, that was probably less than 1%. Think about that. Probably less than 1%. Matter of fact, we had one individual who was kind of a Lutheran scholar criticized that. 
Why is it always the Lutherans? Anyway, uh, but it was, uh, he was saying, well, that's just historically inaccurate. They didn't have the entire New Testament till the third century, the canon of the scripture. I'm going, yeah, but that makes our point. We're saying less than 1%. All they had was the Old Testament, and they had the letters of Paul being read in the churches. So, yes, that's very true. But 300 years later, what do we have? We have Christianity, at least nominally, as part of the empire. So we are much a better situation now in terms of teaching and structure than we were. But I think, if nothing else, what this material should actually cause you to do is really want to commit yourselves to the Great Commission. The need for us to go out and make disciples. And that we should commit ourselves in First Peter to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, we have been learning the essential gospel. Why are we learning the essential gospel? So that we can take the gospel out into the world. And so, to use the old phrase that you see in the scriptures, the harvest is out there. The fields are white with harvest, and it's certainly important to do that. One of the things we also learn in terms of evangelism is, you know, you run into people sometimes if you've done church uh, visitation or you've witnessed to uh, your friend, neighbor, co-worker, and they say, you know, I believe in God. Well, this survey also helped us understand that there's a lot of different definitions for God. For example, we provided different ways in which you can respond to the survey. That God rules, God is a creator, God is an impersonal force. Uh, you can believe that God started the universe and left away deism. There are many gods, there's no God, and I don't know. Now, the good news is, I won't show you all the graphs and charts, most of the born-again Christians had the biblical view of God, a creator God. But what we found is these other groups, these would be Protestants who did not have a born-again experience, Catholics or other religions, at best you could only find about 40% of them believed in a creator God. About 60% of them had some other kind of view, impersonal force, deism, oh, that kind of thing. And as you might imagine, the unaffiliateds, only about 10% of them possess a belief in a creator God. If you run all the numbers... I'll spare you the mathematics there. That means that only one-third of Americans 55 years of age or younger believe in an active creator God. So when you are out witnessing, you know, maybe you use the four spiritual laws, the steps to peace with God. You know, just as there are spirit, physical laws, there are spiritual laws govern your relationship with God. A lot of people, when they say, I believe in God, you need to really define your terms. If you're involved in evangelism, just because somebody says, I believe in God, doesn't mean they believe in the biblical God. And so it's going to be really important. This is also helpful when you talk to atheists. I think EJ's on the line here. Um, he will remember that uh, we've talked with Larry Moyer over the years because Larry Moyer, who's head of Evantel, oftentimes says he runs into people that say, I don't believe in God. And Larry, instead of trying to convince them in the existence of God, he says, well, tell me what you believe God to be. And he says, without exception, by the time they finish explaining who God is, he said, well, I don't believe in that God either, because that's not the God of the Bible. So it really kind of gets you on the start to recognize that just because somebody says, I believe in God, unfortunately, here in America, that does not mean a great deal. Which brings me to the last piece. And again, I'm only covering about a third of our survey, but I wanted to end on time, as we always do. But since we've been looking at the essential gospel I want to get to what has been perhaps the 
piece that has been the most controversial and has created the most amount of news over the last couple of weeks, and that is the issue of salvation. There are many other issues, but for example, we ask questions like, why did Jesus die on the cross? And you could say to purchase our redemption. And if you look at the born-again Protestants, about almost 90% either agree uh, with that or in some way give an answer pretty close to biblical ideas. So they understand that. But then as you start looking at the other choices, well, because he was a threat to the Jews, it was his mission to convert Jews, but he failed, or he wasn't even crucified, or I don't know. You can see how that drops off with other Protestants, Catholics, other religions, and the unaffiliated. So first of all, there are a lot of people that don't even understand why Jesus died on the cross. Again, if you're going to be witnessing to your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, that's going to be an important, very crucial point to bring across. This one, will Jesus return once again? Again, for those that agree or strongly agree, born again, up to 90%. Very good. But when you look at the other Protestants, Catholics, other religions are unaffiliated, they don't believe Jesus is returning again. As I like to say, Gary Frazier, call your office. There's a real opportunity now to talk about the fact that Jesus is going to return again. And that's very important and a very effective way to get people's attention in terms of evangelism. If you notice, I'm giving you some tools for your evangelistic toolbox here, because once we see what people believe or what they falsely believe, it gives you a chance to begin to have those conversations. Did Jesus sin? This was striking because you can see that uh, they are actually the way they're supposed to argue is we say Jesus committed sins like others. And we found that, interestingly enough, uh, more than 20 percent of even born again Protestants said, yeah, I think Jesus sinned. (laughs) Really? Um, Which, again, affects the whole issue of the gospel, which we'll get to in just a minute. But you can see how, again, as you move across there. Those that strongly disagree, you could only find about 20% of Protestants, Catholics, or other religions who would disagree with that. And so there is this kind of common belief among Generation Y and Generation Z that Jesus sinned. Which, of course, gets you back into the whole issue of the gospel. And then finally, the one that generated probably the most response... Do you believe that Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus are all valid ways to God? Again, we're looking for them to disagree with that. And we could find that maybe 40% of 40-somethings disagreed with that, about 35% of 30-somethings, and about 32% of 20-somethings. But you can look across the way and recognize that, again, the younger you are, the more likely you are to believe in what we would call pluralism. Now, John 14, 6 says what? Jesus said, I am what? The way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you can see that this was perhaps one of the more striking results of the survey, although we've only now covered about a third of it. But it did generate uh, quite a bit. Here is an article that appeared in Christian Post. Sixty percent of adults under the age of 40 say Jesus isn't the only way to salvation, equal to Buddha and Muhammad. 
or here's the blaze. Um, and you can see over 60% of born again Christians between 18 and 39 say Jesus isn't only way to heaven. Muhammad Buddha also valid paths to salvation. The study finds. Um, CBN News decided to do a news story on the new survey that shows 60% of Christians age 18 to 39 believe Jesus not the only way to salvation. SRN News did a news story, a uh, troubling poll, quoting uh, Pro Ministries and Kirby Anderson on that particular story as well. Todd Stern, some of you know him, he did a commentary on the whole issue of this as well. And um, if that was not enough, he even had all sorts of Twitter posts. There's one from Jack Graham um, and a variety of others talking about the fact that uh, we have... A lot of work to do, and it illustrates again one of the more riveting and challenging issues to address in terms of this. So do we have some application? And that's our application. I'll turn it back over to Parker. The first is to recognize that we've only covered about a third of the survey. Maybe a couple of weeks from now, we'll spend some more time going through some other aspects if it relates to what we'll be starting next week. Next week, we'll be in First Thessalonians, and we'll be working our way through that. And so I will cover that. For those of you new in the class, I always kind of cover the material that's appropriate for the class that the church is doing. And then since we have a little time at the end, especially since it will be the day after the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the issues in the news in terms of Islam, uh, Taliban, ISIS, the threat of terrorism, some of that will be in the future. But right now, what we will do is just look at this. And it seems to me that there's at least two very obvious action items. The first I think I've already alluded to this. We just cannot assume that non-Christians will be coming to church. If you build it, they will come. I wish that were true. Now, we may be very excited about the people that come in the doors here. They wonder, what is in this church? And they come and they hear the gospel and they come forward and they accept Jesus Christ. And that is outstanding. But the reality is there's a lot of people that are driving up and down Hebron that are never going to walk into this church. So what do we do? Well, we need to go to them, obviously. We can't expect them to come to us. We need to go to them. Now, one of the things that we can use already is the online services. And I had this week Robert Jeffress in studio, and he talked about just the enormous number. I mean, we're talking about millions of people that have watched the First Baptist service that have never walked into the sanctuary at First Baptist. And... Pastor Graham has told me the same thing. Greg Laurie has found the same thing. There are some great opportunities through media to reach out to that generation. So that's certainly one way we can go to them. But I think the other obvious implication is we need to physically go to them. We need to have small group studies, maybe in our own homes, and invite our neighbors in. We need to figure out ways to go out and reach out to those individuals. Because, indeed, the biggest challenge that we have right now is there are a lot of non-Christians out there, a lot of these unaffiliated that are dealing with, as Pastor Graham talked about, they're dealing with loneliness, um, sometimes they are suicidal. They're dealing with anxiety. They have real issues, but they don't realize that the answer to their problems is found in God's word and in a person of Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's going to be incumbent upon pastors to make those connections, to be relevant. I mean, I know the word relevance is kind of a buzzword, but I mean to really help them understand that those issues they're dealing with actually can find their answer 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's going to be really important. It's going to be important for us to do that. And at the same time, uh, we also need to be reaching out and provide authentic Worship and authentic fellowship. Again, authentic is sometimes another buzzword of the millennials, but they want to know, are you really, do you really care about me? It's the old line, I don't really care what you know, I want to know that you care. The second point, of course, is, is that for people inside the church, we cannot assume that everybody inside the church has a biblical worldview. So last couple of weeks when I've been on various TV and radio programs, I said, I think pastors should really do a series called The Essential Gospel. Where did I get that idea from? You know, because, again, it's just Gospel 101. We recognize that sometimes people in the congregation don't understand who Jesus was, what he did on the cross, and the essential gospel. And most importantly, I think we also need to spend time in God's Word. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that the reason so many are unaffiliated is because they spend too much time in front of a screen. You've heard me before talk about the fact that those individuals that are 18 from 8 to 18, according to the Kaiser survey, say they spend about 10 hours a day in front of a screen. I think that number is closer to 15, but just like the 10 hours. Okay, 10 hours every day. 10 times 7 is 70 hours in front of a screen in a week. And we expect a pastor with a 40-minute sermon to counteract 70 hours of content, who wins? And so I think the implication is we need to spend more time in God's Word and maybe even a little less time in front of some of those screens. If you do want some more material, this is on the Probe website, and we go into the survey in much more detail. But this should not discourage you. If nothing else, it should encourage you to say, we need to redouble our efforts through the Great Commission to actually make disciples in this generation. Parker?